2: For more information on Michael and Jeannie, please visit www.whyagain.com. And now your co-host, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. To the brightness within you and the truth that is rooted within me. Happy Tuesday. Today is September 22nd, 2015. I'm Michelle Pache, filling in for Jeannie, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Rice and Dr. Timothy Hayes. We warmly welcome you to the show, and thank you for choosing to be with us. Our call-in number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in the queue to talk with our hosts. We encourage you to call in with your comments or questions, allowing you to actively strengthen and deepen your practice. Now, let's welcome Michael in support of developing our inner process of Aramaic forgiveness.
0: Well, thank you, young lady. Much appreciation for you being here and able to handle the switchboard for us. We are on the road. We're actually heading to Hattiesburg, Mississippi right now. We welcome everybody to the show. We're delighted that you're here. Back about 25 years ago, there was a couple in uh, Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, they used to sponsor my workshops all the time. Whenever I uh, was in Bay St. Louis, they would house me and feed me and take care of me. And uh, so I found out recently that uh, the woman who's part of that couple is now 93 and just moved into a nursing home. So, I'm right, actually on her way to Hattiesburg to give her a surprise visit, to drop by and say hello and uh, give her a hug and take her to dinner. And uh, then we're on to a conference that we're speaking at in Monroe, Louisiana. So we are on the road once again for the next few days, and then, of course, we'll be back at uh, at Heartland, finishing off the uh, the summer uh, process and uh, getting ready for uh, for a journey to go and take the time to do some writing. So we're honored that you're here to share this space with us and uh one of the things that's on my mind i had an interesting uh, or watched an interesting uh, video last night. you and I were watching uh story of a a woman who uh was well let me let me back up a little bit. The issue that i want to address is destructive fantasies and constructive fantasies. You know, I've talked before about one of the simple constructive fantasies we have. We talk about the sun coming up. You know, the sun doesn't come up. Everybody knows that. But everybody says sunrise is that, as though that were a fact. And it's not a fact. It's just not true. And and when you engage in fantasies that aren't true and they're harmless or they're useful, like time. Time is a fantasy. We made it up. You know, if time existed when it's noon in Memphis, it would be noon in Tokyo, and it's not. So obviously it's something we made up, and we make it up whatever way we want it to be, just kind of like life. People make it up the way they want it to be. And so the place where a problem comes in is where you get into destructive fantasies. And uh, this woman, based upon her uh, religious, was talking about how she was kind of excited about when she was going to die, because when she would die, then she's going to get a new heart. Now, not a new physical organ, not that she's got a problem with her physical organ, but she went on to speak about how, you know, her anger and her rage and her viciousness and her gossiping and, you know, she so went through a whole list of, of things, and and somehow or other, her Religious beliefs have left her believing that that's something that's going to happen to her through some magical, you know, I don't know, twist of nature after she dies. Like, see, then everything's going to be cool. And I'm not going to be the defective me anymore that I have been most of my life, being vicious and gossiping and all that sort of thing. And it's such a destructive fantasy. Because I guarantee you, if you don't clean that heart up now, while well, you have the opportunity in a body, it's not going to be cleaned up just because your body dies. Not the way it works. You know, we get we get to make choices and we get to live with those choices forever. When we stop living in destructive fantasies, like some magical thing's going to happen when we die and everything's going to be cool, and we start to realize that. I'm living with the impact of my choices, and if I choose or decide to be hostile, vicious, angry, you know, criticizing, gossiping, slandering, now the only thing that's going to change that is when I change it. And the only thing that's going to change the deepest parts of what, in the ancient teachings, they called the heart, remember they said, take care of the heart, for out of it are the issues in life, is the fact that I learned how to go into my heart, which, you know, we haven't been able to translate that word in the the Western world, and most people still don't have a clue what the word means, but up until just the last few decades, that word was not translatable because we had no concept of the unconscious mind. And so substitute unconscious everywhere you read heart in those texts. And and here you have this genius who understands how the energy system works. He says, take care of the heart, the unconscious, the dynamics that you keep hidden from yourself inside of you, for out of that are the issues in your life. Living or dead, that's going to be the thing that makes up the issues in your life. And so when you touch into the actual teachings, of the man named Yeshua, who was not a religious leader, was not a religious figure. Yeshua was a physicist. He was a psychologist. He was not a theologian. He was a geneticist. He understood exactly how this energy system worked. So when he said, you must forgive from your heart, you want to be free of the viciousness you point toward your brother? He says you must forgive from your heart the wrongs of your brother. The things that you want to point at everybody else, you've got to go inside your own mind and clean it out. And so forgiveness, we have a destructive, extremely destructive fantasy on the planet about forgiveness. Virtually everybody believes this very destructive fantasy. In fact, in the Spanish language, the, the word for forgiveness is representative of exactly what we've been trained, the lie is, we've been trained that forgiveness is about pardoning. In Spanish, it's pardon. And we've been taught this very destructive fantasy that if I have pain going on inside of me, it's your fault, but it's okay. I'll forgive you. I'll let you off the hook. And if I let you off the hook for what's going on inside of me, I've done nothing to change what's going on inside of me. Very destructive to think that I'm going to straighten out my life by letting you off the hook. The actual term of forgiveness is the tool with which you go inside yourself and remove what never belonged. So if you find yourself being vicious, rageful, gossiping, slandering, in any form of negativity, maybe it's time to recognize there's work to be done. There are tools for doing that work. And by and large, the Greeks did a big disappearing act around the tools. Let's get rid of this thing called forgiveness. Tell people to let everybody else off the hook for what's going on inside of them. And when that happens, what takes place is the pre-programmed brainwash that people are stuck in. They stay locked in all their lives, which means the authorities who program them to be there love it because they gather benefits from the fact that people live in destructive fantasies with no knowledge that that's where they're living. So if you think that forgiveness is about how you're going to let somebody else off the hook, better, you've been taught a destructive fantasy. Now, hardening someone else can be a useful tool. I'm not saying that's not true. That can be a useful tool. If I have some of my pain hooked up to my brain's image of you, letting you off the hook can help me to disconnect my pain from my brain's image of you, but it's not going to resolve my pain. What's going to resolve my pain is actual forgiveness, actually stepping inside my own mind, finding the deeper hidden part of my mind, and removing what doesn't belong. Sitting around waiting for some magic moment is not what's going to get us there. So we're here to support you getting there. If there's anything in your mind that works against you living as a human being, And we have an easy experiential definition of a human being. Hold a newborn child. You know exactly what a human being is. When you hold that newborn, when you tap into that newborn essence, you know that human life is the active presence of love. When you choose to live as the active presence of love, you've chosen to live as a human being. Now your work is. If you really want to do that, your work is, to forgive everything in you that comes from your early memories, your early experiences, uh, your genetic predispositions, to go in to every nook and cranny of your mind, of your emotions, of your genetics, and remove what never belonged. What never belonged in the human system? Anything unlike love. The only thing that belongs there is this awesome presence of love that we're designed to live as. And so that's what we're here to support you in doing, should you feel that it's your work to do that. And as you step into that arena, everything begins to change. The whole game of life changes. You will find yourself having lived with certain energies and thinking there was nothing you could do about it perhaps all your life. And you'll find yourself turning around into circumstances that yesterday would have locked you right into that situation, right into that energy. You just locked onto it and, and, and been stuck there. And you'll find yourself wondering what happened to that response that was so destructive that you knew it didn't belong but you had no power over. These tools empower you to be free of what kings and princes brainwash you for to keep you under control. So that's what we're here to support you in doing. And if you haven't accessed the key tool in the whole process yet, we invite you to go to our website, www.whyagain.org. And if you scroll down the page a little bit, you'll see a bullseye in the middle of the page. Click that bullseye, and that bullseye will take you into a whole series of links on how to forgive, how the step-by-step process works. Chapter 24 of my book is the first link. Second link is a, a series of all of the different worksheets that we've created over the years. We suggest you start with the top one on the list before you go into exploring others. Then the third link will take you into uh, a number of our most important radio shows, uh, including 16 shows where we have walked somebody through the whole forgiveness process, step by step by step. And so that's the third link. Click on that. They're MP3s, 16 hours of instructions on how to use that worksheet and how to step through the process of forgiveness. It's not going to be instant. It's not going to be overnight. It is going to be a process that you'll enter into and free yourself, literally free yourself of the capacity for any form of hostility or fear. That's our work here, and we're delighted that you're here to share the space with us. So, Michelle, is Dr. Tim with us today? He is.
2: Hi, Dr. Tim.
0: Well, let's say hello to the young man and see what's exciting in his world. Hello, Dr. Tim. I'm here. Did I catch Did I catch you with a
3: mouthful of food again? What a guy. Just slightly. <laughs> so how are you, Michelle, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. And awesome. I enjoyed your introduction and it it puts me in mind of the, the process you were talking about how one of your favorite activities is watching movies and for a long time when you would talk about that pieces of it I mean I finally heard Jeannie give an explanation of it that it clicked in you know this was two or three years after I met you And the idea that I can use going to a movie and have that stir up stuff in me in this rather protected, safe, isolated way, that then I can do my worksheets on dismantling the content that comes up in me as an adjunct to just going out and living life. a little bit safer. It's a lot more controlled. What's on the screen is just lights flickering and sounds hitting my ears. And so if I can put myself in a setting where I'm going to allow those things to get triggered in me that are less than love and come to the surface, and I know about the tools and I can use them, it's kind of a more programmed, controlled way to access the garbage inside of me rather than just waiting for it to come up in the middle of an important relationship or a business setting. It's certainly a lot more fun than getting kicked in the limitation in real-life experiences. Yeah, and... And, and the, the, the piece that's important there has still been important from my perspective is that I do that when I feel up to doing it. So if I'm absolutely feeling overwhelmed, run down, in a healing crisis, or getting what I would consider bombarded by life events that are triggering all kinds of upset in me, I may choose to stay away from movies like that because I have enough going on in my life right now that I'm processing that I need to be doing my worksheets or my tapping or my breathing or my mind shifter journaling on. And at other times I feel like, well, I have the time, I have the space, I'm doing pretty well. I'll watch a challenging movie and I'll have a stack of worksheets there and I'll have my tapping tool with me and and I'll be ready to watch what's going on inside of me for whatever gets triggered, own it, and dismantle it. I remember one time I was asked to participate in a panel discussion at a Veterans of Foreign Wars gathering about an hour south of where I live. And uh, it was on post-traumatic stress disorder. And there were going to be a panel of people there, a couple of veterans who were officers, one who was just a private a medical doctor who had been developing and promoting a technique for shooting an anesthetic into a nerve, one of the primary nerves at the base of the skull, to try and interrupt the pattern of... um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and um, a religious figure who was promoting prayer to heal post-traumatic stress. And the idea was that they they had a collection of people, veterans and their families, and, and there were quite a few older veterans and the parents of younger veterans, filling this hall, And they were going to show the movie, an HBO movie, that was, it was about the history of post-traumatic stress from before the Civil War all the way through present day. And it was done by one of these HBO directors who is known for his blood and guts and gore. And I sat there, tapping, breathing, Canceling goals, breathing, tapping, cancel, through the whole thing. And and I knew that there were people in the audience who were getting triggered. I could look around and see people who were breaking into a sweat and shaking and people getting up and leaving. And then we had the, the panel discussion, and there was, a, a bless his heart, a young veteran who was trying to answer questions through an act triggered state of post-traumatic stress he was sweating he was shaking his knees were making the table rock and I just thought well you know it's, it's incumbent upon me in future situations to try and give people the tools ahead of time to let them know about the breath work and the canceling of goals and the simple tapping they can do to access their acupuncture meridians and the startle response and and soothe themselves and distance themselves from identification with the sights and sounds and images that someone can put on a screen. And in that process, lots and lots of healing can happen. However, without the knowledge of what's going on and or any tools to cope with it or dismantle the upset that's held within the individual, it's it's simply a reactivation of trauma. So maybe you'd want to say a few words about how you use going to movies and doing the worksheets and how you conceptualize that. Well, for me you know the place where i first
0: started to use this as a tool personally um i don't know if you've seen the movie um,
3: full metal jacket
0: no well that's certainly one of the heavy duty ones but no um uh, uh what what what's the one that uh the, the scots being killed by the brits and freedom uh, <laughs> name, name name of it's gone now now anyway as I Braveheart Braveheart and there's a scene in Braveheart where um, the king offers to one of his uh, generals or tells him gives him the order to send the Irish in for uh, for the kill. And the you know there's a huge gathering of soldiers you know slaughtering each other, and the general says, "But but they'll get killed. We've got arrows." And the king turns to him and says, "Arrows cost us money. In other words, the Irish don't cost us anything. Go let them die. It doesn't matter." And I remember just having this seething rage come up toward the king and realizing that this was a trigger for me that was really an important one because of the, you know, I, I assume of my heritage being Scott, that uh, that genetic component. and And I realized that there was some major work for me to do and I probably watched that movie and would sit and breathe as that scene would happen and have that come up. I probably watched that movie 12, 14, 15 times before I came to the point where I could watch it and no longer had a desire to kill the king, that I could let go of that violence from within myself. And so very often now, I just won't, uh, or, or there was a time, part of me, where I would not go near a violent movie and then when I had the insight that oh, there's work to be done here, I had the instruction to go see a really raunchy movie called uh, The Island. And in that movie, the, you know, it was like I just don't go to violent movies. And in that movie, the opening scene, somebody crawls up over the back of the boat and very graphically has their leg hacked off. And it's like, and I, and I asked the guidance I asked the question, you know, well, what am I doing here? It's like you have a belief in a world of bodies. And you can go out and manifest that belief, or you can sit here, breathe, and do your work, and let these flickers of light that look like real people resonate real things in you. And when those things resonate and they don't support you living as love, then you can forgive those things and free yourself from their influence. And so now I quite Jeannie and I will quite regularly go to a violent movie and we'll breathe and we'll use the tools to free ourselves from what surfaces, from what resonates. And so it's it's a it's kinda of like vicarious atonement. You don't have to go out and create the circumstance in order to work through the issue. The circumstance has been created in a in a movie in a real enough fashion that the mind, of course, not knowing the difference between a real and an imagined experience will be triggered, resonated by those things. And so apply the tool of forgiveness, breathe, tap, as you say, and work through whatever needs to be forgiven, whatever needs to be removed, and you get to free yourself. So it's a powerful, powerful environment. And, you know, it's kind of like another tool that we use is called a mind shifter. And a mind shifter is a tool that you use to, in the same way as a movie, as a resonant device to surface what needs to be looked at and work through those things, free yourself of them. So we'll use a mind shifter, and and in our, of course, our our work, the, the definition of a mind shifter is it's a thought, about an issue in your life around which you have negative thoughts, and it's the opportunity to surface, process, or release the negative thoughts. So, you know, whenever I teach on the, in the video on uh, mind shifters and introduction to still point breathing, I use the, my favorite mind shifter. I always use for instruction sake is because so many people have issues with money. Is I'll give people the mind shifter. I always earn twice as much as I can spend. To which the average person's mind says. Are you crazy? What's wrong with you? I mean, that's ridiculous. I can't even pay my bills. And and so there's how a mind shifter starts. It shows you the parts of the mind where there's negative thinking and gives you the opportunity to free yourself from those parts of your mind and change your thinking. So it's pretty uh, pretty awesome and pretty powerful uh, to, uh, to see how we can move through those things. Another interesting place you can go is music. You start to listen to some of the music of the culture, and the, the kind of destructive mind energy that's planted in people's minds. I was, you know, happened to hear a piece of music this morning, and I forget exactly how the words went, but it was something like, you know, how am I going to live without you? What, what will happen to me when you're gone? Uh, you know, I can't. I can't make it. And you you look at how many, especially young people who are impressionable and emotional and don't know any better, and they sing along to these kinds of melody lines, teaching their brains destructive ideas, integrating those destructive energies through the power of music. And then when a relationship breaks up, people wonder why they go into suicidal thinking. So, or or any other event in their lives, and so if you if you happen to hear music that uh that resonates again, something that's less than love, then you have the opportunity to work through it now, life overall is like one big mind shifter, and what happens is that life will always hone in on the lowest resonating energy that one holds within their structure and when that lower energy resonates, one either buys into thinking and the energy, or one decides to get rid of it, decides to forgive it. And so, rather than waiting for life to come along and kick us in the limitation, we can simply use the tools. Whenever something less than love is resonated, whether it's a piece of music, a movie, a television show, the tone of somebody's voice, the look on somebody's face, or whatever it happens to be to work through whatever's less than love in ourselves. And, and of course, the thing that uh, keys me into, do I have work to do here, and that is if I'm feeling something that's less than love, then this is my work. And so the opportunity to do my work. So that would be my perspective and where I go with it and how I use those stimuli. Michelle, you have any experience with those sorts of things? <laughs>
2: Um, well, what do you what do you mean specifically?
0: Well, just just what the conversation is. Anything to share on the in terms of mind shifters, movies, music, things that mm-hmm. stimulate and get things moving for you, and what you do with them?
2: Um, well, actually, uh, when you were talking about the mind shifters, I, um, I was working at a, a lot this weekend with some clients, and we talked a little bit about it uh, on Friday and then somebody had called in with some mind shifters, and we talked a little bit on the um, call Friday, and then on Saturday I had some clients and did some more work. Um, As far as from Friday to Monday over the weekend, I'll tell you one thing that I've been thinking about, and it it might not directly relate to anything of the conversation, but you asked me what's on my mind. And what is on my mind is, Um, Are you familiar with the um, author, Malcolm Gladwell? He's written um, New York Times bestseller books. There was this one um, book a few years ago back um, in this book called Outliers. He um, presented a concept saying that it takes like 10,000 hours of practice to achieve mastery in, in any given field. And he comes to this conclusion over studying the lives of extremely successful people and how they um achieve that success and so there were some um studies of violin players like some co- psychologists and um studies violin players in the the nineteen nineties and you know from from adolescents when they first started practicing violin at age five until you know, they were adults and that they diverged in terms of their mastery and it seems like they could um, create a correlation between the number of hours practiced and the distinction between those who had achieved the higher levels of um, acclaim, whatever measurable successes that that they could do. And there's other examples like um, Bill Gates and the Beatles and things in terms of the number of practice. So I started thinking about your recommendation of five worksheets a day, you know, for however many days. And um, I know the times that I really am sat down and like, you know, with sick worksheets and kind of committed, I set time aside. I'm going to do these five. And um, I'd say, in my experience, it takes about an hour. I know there people can get through worksheets a lot quicker. I generally find myself drifting off into tangents or different feelings and experience and they kind of get extended. But if I'm gonna do five and get them co complete, I say it's about an hour. So I got to thinking, well gosh, if so you did an hour a day, that's three sixty five, that's three years to get to the ten thousand hours in terms of mastery, assuming, you know, you, you were consistent. And so that idea came to me and I wanted to share it with you because uh Two years ago, when I started this process, I really wanted to storm the gates, and I remember approaching you several times, trying to get a different answer out of you about how I could shortcut this process. And you know, every, every I I remember trying to reword it, coming at you with different angles, and invariably, you know, no, Michelle, <laughs> not happening. So. Um, you're not familiar with the author. Maybe, Tim, you are, the concept and the thought that just talks that out there because I think it supports kind of what you've been saying all along.
3: Well, yes, I am quite familiar with that book. I've used it a lot in references in different talks because it isn't simply the 10,000 hours. Part of his theory is that the thing that leads to greatness is in the beginning a lot of people thought that in order to be Mozart or Einstein or the Beatles or the world's best hockey player you had to be born with genius creativity or genius intelligence or genius sports skills. And what he found through his studies didn't bear that out. What he found was What was needed was somewhat above average, adequate to above average skill level or intelligence. The next thing that was needed was opportunities that were presented. Some people just don't have the opportunities. The next thing that was needed was the willingness to take advantage of the opportunities that were presented. And the last piece was, once you're taking advantage of opportunities as they're presented, ten thousand hours of practice is that benchmark for this mastery which takes you to a level beyond the average or the vast majority of people who have your level of skill or intelligence or creativity or sporting technique, whatever you want to whatever category you're dealing with. So it's really important to understand He's not talking about people who have um, a real deficit in an area, you know, a real lack of coordination. And if they just practice for 10,000 hours, they could be the best, you know, tennis player or hockey player. He's talking about people who have above average, adequate to above average skill level, And they're presented with opportunities, and they're willing to take advantage of those opportunities. Lots of people aren't. And then once they start taking advantage of opportunities, they stick with it and they practice until they've accomplished that 10,000-hour mark. So the the next thing I would say in in what you're presenting, Michelle, is that someone could become the world's best worksheet doer someone could become the world's most beautiful chanter, toner Gregorian chanter the most powerful meditator ever and that doesn't have anything to do with being a better person or being enlightened or getting rid of your negative burdens Michael I'm sure, Michael, you've come across people who are expert meditators. And, you know, Guy Finley talks about us as being master seminar attendees. We've got more plaques on the wall for seminars we've been to. We've been hit on the head with peacock feathers and eaten carrot quiche and all of these other great spiritual traditions. And yet, when the rubber meets the road and a crisis comes up in our life, we have a heart attack trying to figure out who we should be in the moment based on all the things we've learned about this tool and this trick and this ideal, this chant, this meditation, this prayer. So practicing the way Malcolm uh, is talking about in his book, Outliers, is not the same as... Inner knowledge, self-knowledge, learning about what is within you that needs to be released and then having the willingness to let it go. And having the willingness to let the moment act on you to change you so that you exit that moment a different order of person than the one that went in. That would be my input. And you can hear a pin drop. Michelle, are you there?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm here. Um, There's uh, just a couple of thoughts I had. You know, when you say about people not wanting to take an opportunity, I think that any person, really, any person would take an opportunity if they saw it as an opportunity. So people might be presented with, you know, the kings to the kingdom, but... They don't see it as opportunity. There's nothing to take. If I see it as opportunity, I'll take it.
3: Well, <clears throat> that's a, that's assuming, of course, that they're willing to do the hard work. And not everyone is willing to do the hard work. You know, Guy Finley says he gets thousands of emails, and to the one, what these emails are asking for is, can you please give me the one thing? that when I read it, it'll transform me so I don't have to do any work. Lots and lots of people, Alan Cohen has a retreat center like Michael's and has been doing it for years, and he says lots and lots of people come here and spent years doing their spiritual work. And what I've come to, to the conclusion of, after all of these years of working with these people, is everybody wants change and nobody wants to change. Everybody wants to be different. Everybody wants to be enlightened, but nobody wants to give up the self that is holding them in the muck and the mire. They don't want to do the work it would take to let go of their false sense of self and the identification they have because it's work. So yeah, I, I would agree with you that more people would take advantage of an opportunity if they could see it as an opportunity. But certainly not everyone takes advantage of an opportunity when they see it as an opportunity, especially if it's gonna require effort on their part. Did we lose Michael?
2: Yep, we did. And so I will continue the episode um and we'll be okay until we call that. But we um well with there's a person with a hand up, do you want to take a call? Absolutely. Sure, let's do this. All right, area code 775. You're on the air. Who do we have and where are you calling from?
1: Yeah, good morning, Doc. I'm out here in uh, Southern Nevada with uh, Dr. Andraki's group.
3: And your first name
1: or a name? Yeah, Yeah, my name is Harry. Harry? Yes, I just wanted to share with you, I have the first-hand experience about the the music you were talking about. Uh, My daughter-in-law had an illness and passed away at 26 and my son was 28 and he had that mentality that he couldn't live without her and uh he took his life uh just two months ago so i've been dealing with that and um yeah I, you know I, I feel bad that i was up against you know i was trying to help him but i was up against you know those those thoughts with the music and all that and um I'm just kind of struggling with, you know, there was nothing that I could do.
3: Well, to begin with, I'm sorry for your loss. I can empathize with loss, having worked with lots of people over the years. And, of course, one of the worst for us to wrap our minds around and integrate is if someone we know or love takes their own life. And at the same time, I would strongly recommend whenever I have anybody who goes through a serious trauma, that they get the support from friends and family or outside support. Now, you mentioned that you're with Dr. Andraki's group, so there should be lots of good support there. And then the next thing is I would try and get you to plug into the tools. And the tools, you know, we've said it a couple times already in this call, You can't do this work overnight. You can't storm the gates. There's nothing in any of these tools that's going to instantly and forever take away the pain or the sadness or the regret or the guilt that you might have turning around inside of you that gets stirred up by an event like this. So acknowledging that it's going to be a while and at the same time learning some specific tools that can help dismantle in you the energies of pain and sadness and fear that were in you before these two losses happened in your life, that will help. A lot of times when I deal with people around the issue of grief, I run into a wall where they say, I don't want to get rid of my grief. It's the only connection I have to my loved one. And what I recommend is a a programmed approach to saying, please don't lock yourself away from the pain and the sadness and the fear. Because when you do that, you isolate all the good memories Mm -hmm. of your loved one. And if you're running from the pain and the sadness and the fear, or the guilt and whatever, that will eventually be the end result. And pretty soon, after you know months or years of that, it may be that the only connection you have mentally or emotionally to your loved one is the grief and the pain. And then the grief and the pain comes up, and is overwhelming, and you try and throw it in a closet behind you and lock the door and run in the opposite direction, which would look like getting busy at work or going out drinking or being depressed and laying in bed and not being able to get up to, to participate in life or
1: yeah, working that's,
3: myself. That's how, am right, that's how I am right now. I'm pretty
1: withdrawn and just want to stay in bed, and and that's not really me.
3: Okay, but, so the man, issue with I'm that, that of... is when you do that, you're you're locking away all the good memories of your life with it. You said it was your son, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And how old was your son? Twenty-eight. So, probably the most important, at the same time potentially stirring up the most pain, but perhaps one of the most important things you could do is create a celebration of life for your, for yourself of your son's life. And go ahead. Yes, I understand that. I follow. And I and I try to encourage people to, to schedule to do this on a regular basis. Sit in a quiet space and let yourself remember memory after memory. And as they come up, cry the tears, laugh the laughter. You know, feel the sadness and pain. And one memory at a time, live it, breathe it, feel it, and then label it. Catalog it as, wow, this was part of one of the things I really, really loved about my son. Or this was one of those aspects of my son's personality that was hardest for me to deal with. Or this is a whole... um, Let's say we're going to take the instance of humor. My son's sense of humor opened me up to an entire way of looking at the world that I didn't have before I met him. Or my son's sensitivity and his deep sadness and pain helped open me up to people's sadness and pain because I was never you know, that depressed or down when I was a kid. But I saw through my son's pain and sadness, so I have more empathy now for others. Whatever it is, as I have the time, I take the time. It's a sacred process i'm recommending that you schedule for yourself time to sit down open the closet where all the memories of your son are in your mind in your body and be willing to laugh be willing to sing be willing to cry be willing to breathe if you've learned that eft tapping process be willing to do that so you get these energies moving through you And you take those memories one at a time and label them and catalog them. This made it really difficult for me to relate to my son. This is how he was a joy in my life. This is how I hope I made my son's life better by my interaction with him. This is how I probably made my son's life more challenging because I wasn't the perfect father. Memory after memory, I label it, I catalog it, and most importantly, I sit with it So I prove to myself this can't kill me. Feeling the sadness, feeling the joy and knowing I'll never have exactly that joy again, feeling the memories and putting them in place proves to me it can't touch the core of my being and it doesn't touch the core of this other person's being, whether it's my son or another family member or a friend. And then... Over time, as these memories come up, come up, good, bad, and otherwise, there's a quick stab of pain and a breath, and I'm there in the knowledge it can't be too much for me, and I can stay with it, and I can integrate the life lessons and learnings and the way that knowing this person has transformed my life, good, bad, and otherwise. And then when I reach that point... I go back to the closet one day because I have time scheduled to go back and look through more painful memories and I open up the closet and there's nothing there. And then I look around and I realize there's no closet. And then in the library of my mind are all of the memories and all of the thoughts and associated feelings and experiences of that person for ready access in the library of my mind. And from that time on... If I see something that reminds me of my son or my father or my ex-wife or whatever, I get the flood of memories, from the whether it's a good memory or not so good memory, I get the stab of pain, and then I get the full experience of how having that person in my life enriched my life. And if I start speaking to someone about the person I lost at that point in time, they are likely to begin feeling that person is still right there with us because I am not running from the pain, the sadness, the fear. I'm not in denial about the energies within me that I'm afraid are going to overwhelm me. And in the process of doing that work that I call this how to say goodbye to good people without saying goodbye to good memories, or the whole termination process, all the tools on Dr. Rice's website at whyagain.org are powerfully useful to dismantle my sadness and fear, to dismantle my guilt and resentment. You know, I had somebody in my office just last week whose son died, her only son, her only child died when he was 10, and here we are 20 years later and she was she got to a deeper level of her upset, and she sat with eyes closed, shaking both fists tight in the air above her head, just screaming, "I want my son back! This is twenty some years after the fact, and the release that she was willing to go through the pain and sadness and she's been working on this for all these years she has not been somebody who just buried this and tried to pretend it didn't happen but the release she had after that she went home she didn't sleep for a night or two she had a healing crisis and three days later after a good night's sleep she texted me and said sleep equals sanity thank you so much And I saw her again this week, and she's smiling, and she feels lighter, and she's got better access to the memories of her son. And she's still working on her fear about going on in her life, having a good life, having a fun life, even though her son isn't alive anymore. It's a process. And I strongly encourage you to use the tools, use the support team, and call us back if there's any way we can support you through this. Well, thank you,
1: Doctor. I appreciate your support and uh, everything you do. and We do have a wonderful support group out here in Palm.
3: Well, please use them and, and ask them for your support in using these specific tools and dismantling everything that's less than the true nature of love that you are and that your son was and still is in another form. And again... Let us know if there's any more support we can give you here.
1: Well, thank you. I hold a block of love for everybody out there.
3: Thanks. I appreciate the call. Goodbye. Michelle, are you there with us?
0: I, uh...
3: Comments? Questions? Hi, sorry. Hi.
2: I'm here. No, um, actually, I um, thought it was the very impassioned um, sharing that you gave, and I was thinking of a couple people that might benefit from listening to that dialogue in terms of processing and managing grief. And we also have a hand up right now, so with that six minutes left, I thought we could take the press call. All
1: right.
2: All right, here we go. You're on the air. Hi, Sonny. Hi dear, how are you?
4: Um, Today I wrote my question down. (laughs)
2: Oh good. I don't.
4: Yesterday's question has not returned, so that one's just kind of out there somewhere. I'm sure it will come back at some point. Um, That's just part of some of um, some of what I uh, I work with. Um, But today it occurs to me, and since it's the two of you there. Um, Maybe you can help me answer with the way my mind does and oftentimes does not work to where it seems as though I get, you know, like one thing is, you know, one of my worksheet, you know, issues happening and slowing and everything's feeling good and I move on then to the next one because there are many, as I've described, Um, and then it seems like they start falling apart behind me and I have to go back over and start over. You know, like my daughter's starting to slip a little bit, and and then I'm got of like, oh, my goodness, I thought I was getting caught up. What is that about, or how do we handle handle or manage that in our process?
3: Well, I don't know what you mean by I do worksheets, and then I move on, and then they fall apart behind me. I don't know what you mean by that. Can well, you help
4: me? Well, um, like, like I said I, yesterday, it's kind of an example to Dr. Tim and my recovery process to um, the effects of the organ of my brain. Um. But I will go ahead and I have dedicated so much, you know, toward these healing issues with my daughter. And then I'm like, okay, now I can focus on, like, my prosperity worksheets more prevalently and other, you know, other projects and, you know, focusing on. And then I look behind me and realize that my daughter is, like, not holding up so good without the focus. I mean, I'm still attentive to her. I'm still, you know, maintaining what I think is happening there, but the energy just seems to subside for her if I'm not just continually, you know, processing those worksheets on those matters.
3: Okay, well, I wouldn't say that... If I were to describe that, I wouldn't say that that is falling apart,
4: well, I it I would say that, that would, that's just I mean, life. I hope you
3: understand. <laughs> well, I would say that's just life. And the issues that you're talking about with yourself and your daughter, they're in what, when I was in grad school, they called them core issues. And in my first year in grad school, they taught us that whatever you identify as a core issue, whether you like it or not, that issue is going to be with you all the way to the grave. And... That's not a bad thing. If you keep working with it, as I continue to work with those issues that I've identified are the core issues for me, I get better and better at dealing with them. And eventually, I'll catch myself when I'm right in the middle of one of them, rather than two or three days later when somebody points it out to me. And eventually, I'll start to keep working with them and I'll catch them right before it happens. And if I keep working at it years and years later, I'll I'll watch myself get up in the morning and say, you know what, I've kind of unwittingly set the day up, so if I just keep going this way, I'm going to invite one of my core issues to be in my face by, by noon. And so I change the course. And eventually, I see it coming a block away, and I just kind of wave at it like an old friend. So core issues in that terminology would be the same as what Michael calls your 77 times 70 worksheet issues. And this is not a matter of I get done with it. And I keep trying Mm -hmm. to tell people every time I think I'm going to get done with something, I just set myself up to fail. Right. And and And, so I'm going to be on constant watch for what's going on inside me, and I'm going to work at at increasing and maintaining my diligence – For being willing to do my work when I catch myself being triggered at any level that I can catch it, as soon as I can catch it, and apply all the tools in my toolkit to dismantling the energies in me that are less than love. And the concept that you bring out about, I thought I was done with this, or now I have to turn and give my attention to it again, that's just life.
4: Okay. So I would encourage you, you to give
3: up the concept that you're going to be done with this.
4: Oh, I, I realize we're never done. It was just I thought I, you know, had you know that it was pretty well ripened and, and flowing well enough to to move on to another area. But you have served me, and I've already the words you used escaped to me about the key issue or what have you. Because when my brain turned off or whatever happened there yesterday, um, that meant a whole lot to me. And I started worksheets and started my pen busy um, at the end of the call. And what comes to mind in answering this question as you've worked with me on it here today, um, Rex had brought up potential abandonment issues like a year ago. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I don't feel that. I don't get that. And it came to me yesterday because When that happened on the radio show, I'm like, oh, so respectful of your time, more so able to be nowadays, the panic, the embarrassment, the shame, the feeling defeated in my my progress on recovery, I was like, oh, no. Then I had to go into what I feel is like a healthy anger to say, oh, hell no, I'm not going there, you know, and assert myself, when I started doing some worksheets on it, and I did hit abandonment issues, and now while you and I were speaking, my daughter is did not get enough attention with her father, with her other sibling and, you know, attention that she needed, and I'm wondering if she's sensing that I'm not devoting as much of my attention to her and that sense of abandonment that is maybe shared with me somehow.